Hello and welcome to Ken Griffey's Grotesquely Swollen Jaw. The podcast following my journey as I aim to learn all about Major League Baseball. And it's not just team by team, but there's also Spider-Man education, a lot, a lot else that goes on in, in the world of Major League Baseball. So joining me to talk about the MLB All-Star Game and the All-Star Week is our first returning guest, Charlie Baldwin. Charlie, thanks again for joining. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Stuart, and can't wait to uh, get into the All-Star Game and dig further into All-Star Week as well and hopefully hype up what there is to look forward to for all of us. Yeah, I guess that's the clue or what we've just said to, to, to hype it up and what, what we've got to look forward to. So I guess you're a pro All-Star all, all star Game because what we're <clears throat> perhaps used to in Europe, we don't have this sort of thing. It's maybe seen as perhaps unfairly as tacky and uh, and Americanized. So it's, I guess it's good to be that we're starting off with it on the right foot, that it is a positive and enjoyable time in, in, in baseball. Um, so yeah, first of all, what what is it? Um, who who are the two two opposing teams? Yeah, so the All Star Game is a baseball game played under the sanction of Major League Baseball (MLB), contested by all stars from the National League and American League, where the starting fielders are selected by the fans, and pitchers are selected by each team's manager, and reserves are selected by managers and players. So the managers of each team are the representatives of the World Series from the previous year. So this year it will be Rob Thompson of the Phillies managing the NL team and Dusty Baker of the World Series champion reigning Astros managing the AL team. Also, just to add a little bit of history to this as well, Stuart, the first All-Star game took place on the 6th of July, 1933 at Comiskey Park in Chicago, which is the White Sox Old Park. It was part of the World's Fair, which was in Chicago that year, and Arch Ward, who was the editor of the Chicago Tribune, played a big part in establishing it. So for the first game, obviously there hadn't been a game beforehand, they couldn't pick managers, so they went with the two most regarded managers of the era. So for the NL, it was John McGraw managing the National League, who is basically the greatest San Francisco or New York Giants franchise manager of all time. And Connie Mack managing the AL, who was regarded as the greatest A's manager of all time, although during his period managing the team, they were in Philadelphia for a lot of that rather than Oakland. So the purpose of the All-Star game was to raise money for the benefits of families whose players had died unexpectedly. So previous to that, uh, there have been individual games for each specific player. So in a way, you could think about that before the All-Star game, they basically had what we'd call a testimonial in football or a benefits game. So funds could be raised for the player's family at the time, because unfortunately at that time, baseball players didn't really get paid a lot of money for what they did. OK, so but the All-Star game itself, it was for charity. They weren't paid for yeah. playing in that either. Uh, so their yeah. motivation in, in this first first game in, in 33, it was to help their fellow professionals. It wasn't a money-making scheme almost for themselves. No, no, not not like today, where unfortunately everything has some kind of money-making aspect to it. So, well, when was the second one? Was it also at the, the next next year's World Fair, wherever that was held, or how? What what the, sort of successful parts of that first one did they take in, into making it an annual or more than annual event? Yep. So basically, it was only expected to be a one-off event, but because it was so popular and it got over so much with the people. Um, this actually goes back to my first appearance when I cited Carl Hubble's great five strikeouts in a row, which I'm going to say again later on. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next game actually took place in 1934 at the Polo Grounds, the original state, the original park of the New York Giants in New York. And 
from then on, it's always taken place once a year, although between 1959 to 1962, it did take place twice a year. So this was to increase the money going into the players' pension fund. But um, after 1962, the owners basically agreed to give the players a larger share of the income from a single game. So that negated the need for a second game because they were getting as much money as they needed from just one game rather than two. Okay, but still only one game and not the 162 they're playing in in the season. So by this point, yeah. they were being paid to play in it. It was no longer for charity or? Um, it was going to like, so the players basically created a pension fund by that point. Okay, so okay. it was going to that pension. So it was more organized. So they did have Especially a way of. It wasn't a direct they, payment, but it went into their pension pots. Yeah. And then once they retired, like, like with pensions in general, uh, every player got paid um, out of that to some extent. Okay. And so when I'm becoming up, up to it just now, so we're out <clears throat> in July-ish. So getting towards the halfway point of of the season, is that intentional then? Then it's taking place in, in the halfway point before we're getting too serious and before it's too close to October. Is that intentional? Why is this part of the season? Or is it simply because that's when the first one was and it's always been in, in July? I think part of the thinking would have been um, trying to find like a good point for where to have it as well, because at this time of year, there's no other like major US sports really being played. So there's no competition for it. So okay. it can be the pure focus as well. And as a natural splitting point, uh, most of the teams now have played around 81 games or so, which is the halfway point of the season. And if you think about the daily rigors, the grind of playing baseball, like you can go what 12 13 14 sometimes even even more days without a day off as well so i think everyone is just to some extent banged up at this point so i think the break comes across as a comes at a really good time to have the all-star break in, at this um period of time and also uh, something else i'm going to touch on later on is players spend a lot of time away from their families in the baseball season so if you think about eight one games on the road it's a sixth month baseball season so they're spending three months away from their families on the road. So if you're on a two-week road trip before the All-Star game, this would have been the first time in two weeks that you would have had some time to spend with your family. Yeah, so but there's still some some travelling involved for those selected to t- t- take part. So the, the All-Star game, well, where where is it? As I know it's in, in Seattle yeah, yeah. this year, but why why was that chosen? Yeah, so just as, just as an addition there, um, Stuart, as well, like players are also um, encouraged to take their families as well. So you'll so one of okay, the great okay. things if is if you're someone who's quite sentimental and you like enjoy seeing play, seeing players with their families, interacting with their kids, and just throwing balls around and watching their kids go a little bit mad on the field during like certain events, like the home run derby and things like that, or before the All Star game or during the. Um, during the workout, which isn't televised, but it is an event that people can attend as well. Um, it, you do get like videos of like kids just going a bit crazy and a bit mad, and it's that thing of like innocence and fun again, etc. So, in terms of where it takes place, so MLB chooses where it takes place on a year-to-year basis. There's not really a set criteria, but going by past trends, it tends to go to either newer ballparks or cities who haven't hosted it in a very long time or ever. Statistically, there's only one team to have never hosted an All-Star game, which is the Tampa Bay Rays. So this year's All-Star game will be at Seattle on the 11th of July at 1am, the last uh, UK time. The last game in All-Star game in Seattle was in 2001. 
2024, it will be in Texas at Globe Life Field. 2025 is to be decided and potentially a big one for Dave Shaw and all the UK's Fleet of fans out there is in 2026, it will be at Citizens Bank Ballpark in Philadelphia to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence as historically it was actually signed in Philadelphia, which some people might not know. And these events sell out in in the ballparks. It's an honour typically for to be chosen to host it. Yep, definitely. It definitely um, adds to the local economy. There's a big boost in in uh, the economy. There's also uh, baseball fans also travel like from across America to see it and kind of parlay okay. it into a vacation as well. So similar to what we saw in London, where I think um, there were quite a few Cardinals and Cubs fans going by like the videos and pictures I saw who basically said, right, we'll come to London, watch the game, spend a week there, go home again. Um, yeah, I think it's very a very similar kind of thing to uh, fans traveling across America for the All-Star game as well. Oh, so fans will be descending on Seattle wearing their team's jerseys. They'll go essentially yeah, to definitely. support their player. Yeah, their player. And interesting, one one other thing, fun fact about the All-Star game is any other time of year, you'll never see me rooting for Freddie Freeman or Mookie Betts or maybe Clayton Kershaw if he's a pitching selection. But I actually liked all those players before they joined the Dodgers. So it's this nice one time of year where I get to support the NL. I get to support them for a change. And yeah, it's one of those, um, again, fun things, like fun things that you just don't get to do at any other point in the year. But you're not um, watching it was hiding behind the sofa, hoping your favourite Giants players don't pick up an injury, or is it sort of t- played at a, a, a lesser pace? So there's never, so has there ever been a, a serious injury that's then gone on to derail a team's hopes because they've lost a, a pitcher to a shoulder injury in in the in the All Star game? Um, unfortunately, injuries do happen. Um, mm-hmm. You do you will get some players who will withdraw like once the reserves have been selected just because they are they feel like they're too banged up to play and they would rather take the four or five days off that they get for the season. But the majority mm-hmm. of players going will be well enough to like say that they can play and will play to their hardest as well. Um, so I, th- I think similar to the World Baseball Classic where it was a prestige and honour to play, but the injury risk was there as we unfortunately saw with um, Edwin Diaz, the Mets closer and one or two others but in general for i think the players the the, the honor and prestige of playing in that environment atmosphere um just outweighs the risk to injury okay so it, is that the same as other u.s sports as, as far as you're aware i mean it sounds like in the mlb it is still that prestige to take your family and have have the fun in a different cities of a few, a few days different it would that, that be the case in the other sports from, from what you know uh, yeah, so um, I did do some research on this because I don't follow NFL as closely like as I used to, mm-hmm. and I don't really follow NBA or NHL. And opinions on this are subjective, but like looking at the amount of rankings that I have done over like last few days or so, um, the MLB All Star Game in comparison to NFL Pro Bowl, the NHL, and the NBA All Star Games is always ranked um, at number one just for a number of reasons, mainly because the best players do actually play for the most part when, when they do get voted in, mm-hmm. and which isn't the same thing for one or two other games. Um, like The Pro Bowl is notorious for it, of just basically so a lot of the best players aren't there because of the Super Bowl taking place the week after. Yeah. Um, with, with it being at the end of the season, there's also a lot more players banged up who are just ready to just 
essentially go on vacation or would just rather stay home with their families and recover. Um, but crucially, I think one of the differences is the players are actually invested in the All-Star game. They want it to be competitive. They want to win it. They take pride in being able to say, like, I had my All-Star game moment, similar to... Um, there's not really another exhibition game like it, in all honesty, so it's kind of hard to really like compare it to anything, but like just that kind of special momentous moment in a game that um, if you perform on that level, you will be remembered for all, for all time, as we will see when I go on to um, great legendary moments of All-Star games a bit later on. Yeah, so it is. Um, I think we <clears throat> touched, touched upon it in your, your first episode with, with Willie Mays making the record number of appearances or an almost record number. So you yeah. the, the players do play more than one so they yeah. even now when they retire they can say i they had 10 all-star appearances yeah. or multiple all-star appearances is a great way of ranking a player and, and their legacy when they when they retire yeah it's not a game breaker or deal breaker or anything but if you're someone who's on the verge of being in the hall of fame and you can say i was in say 8 10 or 12 all-star games mm-hmm. it's just an extra thing in the minds of voters as well to say Okay, all right. It was voted on, but they made it. Or if they got voted in by the players' ballot to be on the reserve list, then obviously their peers fought high enough to um, vote them in that many times as well. So even for getting into the Hall of Fame, it I'm not saying it matters a huge amount, but it's one of those second or tertiary points that could make all the difference if you're right on the bubble, right on the line of making it or not making it. Yeah, just to support, support your case. Uh, so I... Um... When I was re- reading um, in one of the previous episodes, I spoke to Anthony Kastrovince, uh, who'd written a book on baseball an- analytics, uh, which I've since since read. And there's a lot of lot of about it in terms of Hall of Fame eligibility. So slightly off the All Star topic, but I'm sure you'll know the answer to this. So what is or what are the rules for the Hall of Fame eligibility, and how does someone get get into the Hall of Fame? Yep. So basically, you have to have been retired for a minimum of five years so basically anyone who retired in uh let's see five years ago so anyone who retired in 2018 will be eligible for the first time this year um i believe it's about 15 years that you get to be on the ballot as well but you also have to pull a certain amount of the percentage of votes to stay on the um hall of fame ballot i believe it's something in the realms of about five percent um, anybody who gets over 75% or over gets voted in. Um, if you don't get voted in, there are what are called um, era committees. So even if it's someone from the 1920s or 1930s who didn't quite make it through at that time, the committee for that era will meet, I think every, each committee meets on a rotational basis about every three years or so. So they will um, consider players from that era and then they'll either say, no, we don't think they should be in. Or, yeah, for whatever reason at the time, they made a mistake and they should be in. So if you're somebody like me who is pro Barry Bonds being in the Hall of Fame and he's not going to make it, like, in the current process, mm-hmm. or he hasn't made it in the current process, but a Veterans Committee in, say, 20 years' time, when the Peds era is kind of looked at from more of a numbers standpoint rather than maybe an emotional moral standpoint, might go... Yeah, even if you factor in the fact he did peds from 1998, allegedly, even if you look at that beforehand, he was on the path to being in, and he was probably in already. Okay, his numbers took a jump after that, 
but for the player he was going to be anyway, he probably would have been in. That's enough for us, kind of thing. Okay, so how many um, players or ex-players are in- inducted each year? It depends on how many meet the 75% threshold and okay. which era committees meeting at that time. I can't remember off the top of my head how many players um, each specific committee looks at per year, but I think it varies. Um, so it couldn't be anything from just uh, three or four all the way up to like seven, eight or nine, I think. Okay, but still it's single digits. It's not 200. Yeah. It's still, uh, no. still a it's two, Yeah, it's based generally about um, you'll have some years where there might be only one who gets in. I think generally it's been about two to four or so over the like, last few years. But um, basically a big issue has been the actual ped era because mm-hmm. it's how do you judge those players? So I basically look at it as would they have got in without PEDs? So for somebody like, say, Sammy Sosa, whose numbers just took a huge jump from like, when he wasn't on PEDs essentially, and I just go, no. Then look at, say, Barry Bonds, who, if you look at it straight up to 1998, um, he's not he's not as good as he... He wouldn't have been as good as he was with Peds, mm-hmm. but without Peds, he's still, for me, a surefire Hall of Famer. Okay, so but for other people, they kind of have a lot, a lot of different approaches to it. You'll get people who just say, right, use Peds, no chance. No, off my list, that's it. Some people who just be 100% statistical and just say... Well, we can't really tell who did or didn't do them. There's probably people who didn't do them anyway. Right, he's got the stats. Yeah, put them in. Um, generally, they used to be like benchmark stats as well. So, for instance, for pitches, you'd be looking at 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, um, longevity at least 10, 10 to 12 years, if not longer in the game. Mm-hmm. But basically, with the way the game's changed, with like short outings and things like that, um, you could probably say about 200 wins, somewhere in the realms of 2,500 strikeouts. Because if you look at who's around now, and even the Justin Verlanders, Max Scherzers, Clayton Kershaws of this world, nobody's going to be touching 300 wins for a while, maybe, if not ever now. And the same thing kind of applies to hitters as well, because it's the hardest it's ever been to hit, essentially. So previously, you would have probably been looking at batting 300, um, hitting at least 300 home runs, um, high OVP, so three probably 380 plus. But then, um, with how difficult it is these days, you probably have to scale that down a bit. And then also, there's the, um, as you as you were saying there, the introduction of analytics and looking at things like WRC plus, um, the different kinds of war. So if you're on a baseball reference, there's they have a great section just for the Hall of Fame, in which if you look at it, and they will go. Right, here's an average of what a Hall of Famer for this position has in terms of stats, and you can basically do a search or give you a list of players in that position. So, for instance, if you want to look up Nolan Arenado, like whether he's on track for Hall of Fame, in that section they'll like compare his stats to like third baseman already in the Hall of Fame, and they'll say, "Yep, he's on track," or "No, he needs to have like five more great years, etc., to do it." So, yeah, there's really a ton of different ways of looking at it. Good, but what this also a factor, as, as we said, or what might be that secondary factor would be a memorable moment, a memorable performance in yeah. in the All Star Game. So what a, I think I put a, put on a <clears throat> note. So what famous moments have there been? But I'll change it slightly and say what have your, your favourite moments been first, and then you tell tell me about famous moments that all all of baseball will, will know and are, that aren't specific okay. to your your memories. Yeah, so there's two that came to mind um, when when um, 
when I was thinking about answering this question. So just to throw it back to my first appearance, so the 1934 All-Star game at the New York Giants Polo Grounds. So Carl Hubble strike out five Hall of Famers in a row, including the legendary Babe Ruth, with also Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, and Joe Cronin. All five of them hit over 300 for their careers. They had a cumulative total of 13,452 hits while also slugging 2,208 home runs between them, just to give you an idea of just how good they were. And that was an era where hitting home runs was a brand new thing. Like, no, there'd been, I don't think there'd really been anybody to do it before Babe Ruth, like to that extent of like 30 home run seasons were pretty much unheard of before him. So mm-hmm. for Hubble to strike out, like hitters of that quality and power, um, unheard of. And I think if you put it era by era, I think it definitely deserves to be up there as like an all-star game memorable moment. The next one was in 1971 in Tiger Stadium in Detroit. Um, Yankees fans might know him as Mr. October, but um, he was Mr. July in this one. Uh, Reggie Jackson hit a home run that hit the base of the light tower on the right field roof. According to home run, home run tracker, um, had the light tower not gotten away, it would have travelled an incredible 532 feet. So Hall of Famer's Ernie Harwell, who is a legendary Tigers commentator, and Al Kaline, one of the best well-known um, Tigers Hall of Hall of Famers, who was well-known for hitting home runs himself, and also Jackson himself, all said it was the hardest hit ball they'd ever seen. Also, in terms of the game, it came at a crucial moment as it cut the NL's lead from 3-0 to zero to 3-2. to two, And the AL would go on to win 6-4, which would, at the, which would at the time end an eight-game winning streak for the NL. So that was a moment that impacted not only like Jackson's history, but the game mm-hmm. as well and was a turning point. So in terms of um, wider ones in baseball, so... Again, 1941. I'm not sure what's going on with the ones here, but nice occurrence. <laughs> and again, a Tiger Stadium, although 30 years before the previous moment. So Joe DiMaggio was in the middle of his amazing 56-game hitting streak. But what kind of gets forgotten was Ted Williams was also having a historic season himself. So this was a season where he would become the last player up to now to bat over 400 for a season, so 406. for. So those of you who have been following Luis Arias would have probably heard about this, uh, Ted Williams' season, because of that. But um, in the 1941 All-Star game, rather than DiMaggio, it would be Williams who would take all the headlines. So Joe DiMaggio and his Yankees teammate Joe Gordon were on base in the bottom of the ninth, with the AL down to its final out. And Williams would hit the first walk-off home run in All-Star Game history, which would lead to a 7-5 win for the AL. And then uh, one more, and again, um, it's just a weird occurrence with the ones, but in 2001 at Seattle's Safeco Field, Cal Ripken Jr., the Orioles Hall of Famer, who was famous for being record holder for MLB consecutive games played with 2,632, was voted into the game a month after announcing announcing his retirement. He was voted to play in third base, but in a huge sign of respect, Alex Rodriguez insisted to Ripken Jr. that they swap positions so Ripken could play shortstop, which was the position that he'd start his career at. The crowd then rose to applaud Ripken Jr. before his first at-bat in the third inning, and he gave them even more to cheer when he actually clobbered the first pitch he saw over the left field wall for a home run. 
And also, play was halted in the sixth inning to honour both him and Padres Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn, who was also retiring. They also both received the Commissioner's Historic Award from Bud Selig, who was commissioner at the time. And Ripkin would also win the All-Star Game MVP for that game. So, um, so there's a lot of, quite a few things happening in Ripkin Jr. for that game. And also, in a recent change, there won't be any extra innings games in All-Star Games from now on. So this was from last year. So instead, it's going to be decided by a three-player home run derby. So three players will be selected by each manager, and they'd basically Mm -hmm. have a home run derby between them. So if there's a tie this year or going forward, there's a chance someone else could make history by being the first player to win the All-Star Game in a home run derby. But the, sorry, derby, but the potential participants Mm -hmm. have not yet been named. Okay, but but it means a, a lot then for the winning team. Is it purely bragging rights? I mean, you mentioned um, the A Rod allowing Kakar Ripkins the position change, but with that, you know, as, as the show of respect, it, it was not as if if winning had made meant everything. Then perhaps maybe they wouldn't wouldn't have done it. Yeah, um, yeah, retirements are a big thing at All Star Games, so. Um, for Yankees fans of the over the past decade, they would have seen uh, the likes of Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera for the Red Sox, uh, David Ortiz. So, although it's not the final goodbye per se, because I've got half a season, it mm-hmm. is an occasion where fans from every team are there and they can pay their respects to these legendary players. So, obviously, with the Yankees and Red Sox players I mentioned there, like normally they wouldn't cheer them, but this would be one of the few occasions where they would just be just out of absolute respect for their achievements. And yeah, so it's a great moment in time. And obviously the Cal Ripkin thing I mentioned there is still talked about as an iconic All-Star Game moment. And even if they'd lost the game, it would have taken some shine off it, but I don't think it would have meant any less or given any less uh, gravitas to what he did during the game and how the fans felt about him and felt the need to honour him during the game. And also the great thing that Alex Rodriguez did to basically sacrifice his position so Ripkin could get one more or a few more final plays at his natural position, shall we say. And overall, historically, who is in the lead, NL or AL? I know we were speaking about that, the AL East before we, or the strength of that division before we, we got on. So is does one division or one league have a, a far higher Um when when ratio than the other yep so the al stewart leads 47 43 with two ties overall um the al also leads in runs scored with 381 to 374 and they've just been completely dominant since 1988 going 27 6 and 1 including a 12 0 1 unbeaten streak between 1997 to 2009. But yeah, it does tend to go in streaks. Like earlier, I mentioned mm-hmm. that the NL had won eight in a row up to uh, Reggie Jackson's uh, game changing home run in 1971 series. But recently, it's been um, primarily AL, AL dominated. Okay. Uh, so, you as an, an NL fan, you do, do you wear an NL jersey or how do they. Um... What what actually is the um, feel or appearance in on the field? Uh, yeah, so it's changed over the years. So they used to actually be able to win, uh, sorry, win to wear their individual team jerseys. But um, over the past few years, they've developed like separate um, National League and AL League jerseys, and they tend to 
take the theme of the city they're in from year to year so you'll never get like two jerseys the same in consecutive years they'll always be like themed to where they are so i'd probably expect something maybe bluish grayish like bearing in mind the mariners colors for this year or maybe something with a sea type logo on it maybe like as in like the ocean or the sea like with the Mariners theme there so yeah it's quite interesting from that standpoint as well like there's probably I don't know anyone personally but there are there's probably people who have like collected them for the last 30 years or so and have got every single one kind of thing uh so I think we've we've covered it throughout throughout our chat so far but I know we'd uh but it is a popular thing I know I know we said it is still an honor for the players um but for you as a fan or for the for the UK fans, you know, you said it's a 1am UK time kickoff. Do you expect majority of fans to be, to be tuning in or is it are the fans as well taking the, taking the, the time off, the few days off baseball and what are the typical social media engagements or TV viewing figures? Are they normally still, still popular? Um, yeah, in terms of um, watching it as fans, obviously it's a bit more difficult for us in Britain. Um, mm-hmm. To me, um, I'm not working at the moment, but um, when I have been in jobs, um, generally, like, I would actually take All-Star Week off just because it falls at a good okay. time of the year for me because um, I because luckily for baseball, if you divide, like, the times of year where the major things are happening, it actually works quite well if you like to stagger your holidays over three or four months. So, say, if you decide to take opening week off, that would have been um, beginning of April. So then, mm-hmm. say, you decide to take the All-Star Week off after that, that's literally three months after that. So, again, that's another week. And then if you decide to take a week or two off the playoffs, again, that's another week. In But, again, it's three months off in October. So, I think as British baseball fans, if you're willing to, like, spend the holidays to do it in terms of the days, it can actually work out quite well. And it doesn't... And if you want to watch it live, you can watch it live. But I tend to watch it the day after, like, on demand as well. And um, the All-Star game will be... be will, be shown on bt sport as well i'm not sure if it will be backed out on mrb.tv if you subscribe that way but it may be on there on a time delay uh going by what happened with the playoffs uh, last season and there's another thing that's come up in a few of my episodes that everyone has their favorite uh, team commentators and broadcasters is it will it be the mariners broadcasting team or who will be be covering it um from a broadcasting perspective um for the that's basically the main fox team covering it in the u.s so Mm -hmm. yeah it's joe davis and john smaltz um it will be the mlb international um yeah the mlb international commentation commentator team covering from covering it from outside the u.s so it's primarily up to bt sport for what team they choose to show but in the past they generally tended to show the mlb international team and i know because i'm a giants fan uh dave fleming um covered it last year he's basically the giants play-by-play commentator for radio primarily although he's been doing more road games on tv because our main commentary team are unfortunately not in the best of health now and getting on a bit so he's gradually taken over the road games and i know i'm going to be biased here by saying like he's really good but he's but been a part of the ESPN B team in terms of mm-hmm. national coverage in the US for a while. He also commentates on PJ Golf as well. And so he does the Masters and things like that. And he also does uh, college football um, for certain stations in California as well. So 
He is a really well-rounded, good commentator. He's got a good sense of humour as well. And he also covered um, part of the World Baseball Classic, depending on how much of it you're able to see um, in January, February time. So so I'm not sure who his um, secondary commentator will be, but I know in recent times, but Martinez has covered some of them and he's really good. He's a Blue Jays analyst who's been a manager, uh, who's been in front offices. Uh, he's just one of those baseball lifers who's been around for 40 or 50 years and basically what he doesn't know about baseball isn't worth knowing. Um, but I'm not sure if it will be him or if it will be another um, colour commentator in his place. Okay, so it's not like there's a, an all-star selection process for, for commentators, it's just the regular regular national broadcasters who've, who pick up the game. Um, so <clears throat> I think what we've what we can do now, uh, I think, is yeah the the voting process. And you sort of mentioned there's some controversies in terms of the the process. So if you if you're listening and you either agree or disagree with with Charlie's takes on the selection process, be sure to reach out to us. So I'm on Twitter at SwollenJawPod, and Charlie is at Baseball Chaz. Okay, so before we get into the voting process, there's two set requirements, Stuart. So. Firstly, each team's all-star roster size is 34. And also, this is somewhat controversial. Um, every team must have at least one all-star representative. So in the nicest way possible, we know that the Royals, the A's and the Nationals are terrible this year. Um, so it's it's a bit of a harsh question to ask. Like, mm-hmm. Are there players on those teams who deserve to be on the all-star team? Well, I would say Lane Thomas of the Nationals does. He's having himself a great season. He's top 10 in a few different stats um, in the league. Um, the, the Royals is a little bit more que- questionable, but if you want to make it fair and you want to make it a special occasion for every team's fan fan base, I don't see the harm in having one player from each team on the team. They're not, they're not going to be in there as starters anyway so obviously they could be relief pitchers starting pitchers who come into the game or reserve players in the field so to mm-hmm. me that's not a big issue um so in terms of the phase of voting so the first phase is basically who fans want to see in the all-star game so at the end of phase one the two highest folks vote getters are guaranteed a spot starting spot at the all-star game so this year, those spots went to Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves, who is leading pretty much almost every important statistical strategy in the National mm-hmm. League. And the current or future legend, depending on your thinking, Shohei Otani of the Angels, who is putting together another historic season. Mm-hmm. But for every other position, it's then narrowed down to two finalists. So the highest two vote-getters at that position in the NL or AL go through to another round of voting to vote on who gets to start at that position. So, for instance, for third base on the National League team, it was Nolan Arenado of the Cardinals against Austin Riley of the Braves. And so they went through to voting phase two. So then, again, the public get to vote on the two finalists for each position with the winner starting at that position in the All-Star game. So in the Arenado versus Riley example, Nolan won the vote, so he will get the start at third base. In terms of the rest of the roster, the pitching staffs and reserve position players will be decided by player ballot choices and by the commissioner's office. And although it does bring up some surprising names on occasion with it being a fan ballot, so this tends to be from teams who are having a great season, just being excited and wanting to see as many of their players in as possible. 
So a potential example of this is Orlando Arcia, who a lot of people didn't see coming in terms of voting in the National League for the shortstop position, but he has won it outright, so he will be starting there. But when you factor in, say, the Trey Turners, Francisco Lindor's this world, it is a bit of a surprise. So looking at the stats in the NL, um, in terms of at least 150 plate appearances at the shortstop position, Arcia does rank second in batting average with 297, is third in on-base percentage with 350, and third in OPS with 779. Uh, for outs of average, which is the most widely available defensive advanced defensive metric, he ranks fourth with five, so zero is average, so he's above average there. But for wins above replacement, which takes into account both offense and defensive metrics, he only ranked sixth with a one with a one point eight. So there is an argument to say there are better candidates to start shortstop. But in contrast, on the AL side, Texas have the most representatives of anybody with four All Stars this year. Again, although the Braves weren't a surprise team, the Rangers were definitely a surprise team. So I think for pretty much all the players on their on their team, apart from maybe Corey Seager and Marcus Semyon, who were both known as high tier three agents so the other two are quite surprising uh, with Jonah Heim being one of them so he actually beat out um, emerging superstar catcher Adley Rutschman of the Baltimore Orioles in the second phase of the vote but in contrast to Arcia Heim leads catchers um, in the AL in terms of 150 plate appearances minimum with 12 home runs uh, 41 runs scored. He leads batting average 285. He's fourth in on-base percentage with 336. Second in slugging with 485. And he leads in OPS in 820, with 825. And he's also regarded as one of the best pitch framing catchers in baseball. And he actually has quite a sizable lead in war. And by the way, for those of you who know war a bit better, I'm actually using the Fangrass version rather than mm-hmm. the baseball reference version. So he leads AL catchers with three versus Adley Rutschman in second, who has 1.9. So there's kind of a contrast there to say with Arcia, it's arguable whether he should be in the All-Star game, let alone starting it. But uh, Jonah, he's more than earned it. He's got the stats. He already had the defensive reputation. He's put it together. He's having a great season. In a lot of ways, he is the embodiment of Texas, like just coming out of nowhere. And he definitely deserves to be there, as I um, outlined there. So you, have you got the lineups to hand there, Charlie? That they're, they're already announced starting lineups then? Uh, yep, the starting lineups have been announced. The reserves are being announced tonight. So for the audience out there, we're actually recording on Sunday, July the 2nd. So they are going to be announced later tonight on, um, I believe it's ESPN with the reserve selection show. But in terms of the starters, at catcher, so I'll do the NL first. So at catcher, we have Sean Murphy of the Braves. At first base, it's Freddie Freeman of the Dodgers. At second base, it's Luis Arias of the Marlins. At third base, it's Nolan Arenado of the Cardinals. At shortstop, it's Orlando Arcia of the Braves. In the outfield, there's Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves, Mookie Betts of the Dodgers, Corbin Carroll of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and J.D. Martinez of the Dodgers as well. In the AL, at catcher, we have Jonah Heim. At first base, it's Yandy Diaz of the Tampa Bay Rays. At second base, it's Marcus Simeon of the Rangers. At third base, it's Josh Young of the Rangers. At shortstop, it's Corey Seager of the Rangers. In the outfield, it's Mike Trout of the Angels. 
Randy Orozarena of the Rays, Aaron Judge of the Yankees, who at the moment is injured, so he may well get replaced, and Shohei Otani of the Angels. I think um, a surprising thing there, Stuart, is just mm-hmm. the absolute dominance of the AOS. Obviously, you would expect Mike Trout and Shohei Otani to be in there because they are that well known. Whereas they could even, they're not having bad seasons, but they could be having the bad seasons, but they've kind of got the name reputation to get past oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. But then you look outside of that, of the Angels and the Rangers, essentially, and there's only Andy Diaz of the Rays, Randy Rosarena of the Rays, and Aaron Judge of the Yankees. And there's a chance that even Adelis Garcia of the Rangers could be replaced with Aaron Judge as well. So, yeah, that's a surprise. But again, as I was saying earlier, Rangers having great season reflected in the voting. And um, I imagine there must be fans of other teams who have taken that on board as well. Because I don't think the Rangers would have just been able to no. outvote uh, potentially more fa- famous players out there as well. And this is, I mean, of course, this is 2023. So by a public vote, I'm assuming you mean an online one. But in the olden yeah. days, it was through a, a newspaper or a magazine, the public vote, or it wasn't always a public vote. Um, yeah, so um, it's an online vote. So um, the Hall of Fame ballots have been up on MLB.com for a while now. Um, in the past, basically, it did used to be through newspapers. But as you can imagine, there were some who tried to take advantage of that. So what they did in the end was they used to have balloting stations at mm-hmm. um, every MLB league team. So every MLB team would get like a limited number of ballots just to make sure it was fair. And so you say you couldn't have... The Yankees, obviously, because they're in a much bigger area than, say, the Miami Marlins. So you couldn't wouldn't have them unfairly just stuff in the ballot box to get all their players in, even though there may be some who might be having a bad season, may not deserve to be there. So then, yeah, before the advent of online voting, it was done by ballots at major oh. league stadiums. So it's taken taken very, very seriously then, like uh, like polling day in uh, or polling week for, for an election. It was... Um, you have to go in there in person. I guess it means you can yeah. make sure it's real baseball fans or at least casting the votes if they're having to go, go oh, in person they, to do so. And um, MLB aren't shy about reinforcing the rules if they feel there has been uh, malplay or malpractice at it as well. As recently as 2015, um, it was looking like the Kansas City Royals, who were the who had just lost the World Series to the Giants at the time, were going to get eight players in the AL team. But MLB did an investigation to it and they found like the local Kansas City newspaper at the time had actually put in fraudulent ballots. So once they took those off, they literally halved the amount of Royals players that went to the game. I think I think they had four selected, but one was injured, so they only had three in the end. The motivation for the fraudulent ballots from a from a newspaper was because then at the end of the day are they how would that make them sell more more newspapers? I'm just curious, or, or is it just the local town spirit? The more Kansas players, the the more prestige they'll get. I mean, it's really just trying to figure out what their motivation might have been for doing them. Or anyone's um, motivation for, for for being fraudulent if they aren't going to stand to profit financially unless the players are unless they bribe them to, to help them <laughs> out. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a number of factors. Obviously, like it helps. The Royals aren't a big market team by any means, as well. So, if you get the hype, the excitement there, um, increased merchandise sales. I'm guessing because it was kind of a golden era of baseball for them. They were selling out 
um, their park anyway. But obviously, if you kind of got the prestige of like, right, we've got eight players in there, for some of the fans who are more on the fence, it might have persuaded them to go a bit more as well. Um, I'm trying to remember. Where, I can't unfortunately remember where the 2015 game was, so I can't say for sure if it was in Kansas or near Kansas. So obviously, if it had been, it would have been the motivation there to encourage more Royals fans to attend as well. So, and and again, from prestige standpoint, having eight players in there um, mm-hmm. never been done in history up to that point. Uh, so so again, that may as well may may have been um, motivation. motivation there as well. Yeah. Okay, so Charlie, you just mentioned that Kansas would have had the first time anyone has ever had eight players on an all-star team. Is that record been broken or what else are your favourite favorite records in, in the all-star game? Uh, yes, yeah, so I think the most has been somewhere between four or five, but just as a correction to uh, my previous appearance, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Stuart, so Hank Aaron actually leaves an appearance with 25. Willie Mays is actually second with 24, but if by some miracle he's listening to me, I don't think he'll be that upset about it because he actually has a few other records. So at the moment, he actually shares a record for All-Star Game MVPs with Steve Garvey, Gary Carter, Cal Ripken Jr. and Mike Trout, who all have two each. So we could see history made if Mike Trout wins his third one this year. Uh, Willie Mays also leads the All-Star game with 20 runs, 23 hits, and is tied for most extra base hits with Cardinals legend Stan Musial with eight as well. Musial also leads in home runs with six. And also, just as an aside to that, there has only ever been one All-Star game Grand Slam hit, and that was by Fred Lynn in 1983, which also happened to be the 50th anniversary of the first All-Star game. Uh, Ted Williams leads all time in All-Star Game RBIs with 12. On the pitching side, Roger Clemens leads with nine games pitched. Don Drysdale, Lefty Gomez and Robin Roberts are tied with five starts each. Don Drysdale leads with 19 strikeouts all time. Lefty Gomez is the leader in wins with three. Rich, who has a great nickname in in the mold of Goose, so Rich the Goose Gossage, leads in games finished with six. And finally, Yankees legendary closer, the best closer of all time, Mariano Rivera, leads the All-Star game all-time in saves with five. Yes, I'm glad, glad I heard another uh, Roger Clemens. So I'm always still still looking out for the, for the Simpsons original uh, power plant <laughs> team when I'm going to do these episodes. Although my knowledge is increasing, it's still the original set of players who I'm, who I'm looking out for. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing, Charlie. And I think that's a nice way to bring to an end part one of our chat about the all-star game and join us in a few days for the all-star week join us on friday as charlie tells me all about the rest of the all-star week including some pretty bad guesses from me about who is playing in the celebrity softball tournament, as well as some interesting stuff about Britain's own Harry Ford.